It's an ancient archetype, the woman who stands out not for her beauty, but for her alluring sexuality. She's often intelligent, or as the stories put it, wily, because her sexuality and intelligence aren't things to celebrate, not according to traditional morality. No, these things make her dangerous, even wicked, poised to ruin men's lives. She's a femme fatale. The femme fatale, or fatal woman, is a stereotype. But like most stereotypes, it's rooted in something real. In a sexist society, women don't have access to traditional power, but they've been able to use their intelligence and sexuality to create power. And they've been vilified for it. Except sometimes even men get desperate enough to look for power in unexpected places. For example, during wartime, when the war isn't going well and the troops are losing ground, when Europe's fate and the world's is hanging by a thread. Suddenly, any venue is worth trying, even a villainous femme fatale. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're doing something a little different. We're starting a five-week special on femme fatales. These women have a bad reputation, and sometimes they are indeed criminal. But if you've listened to this show, you know criminal is a relative term. Some of these women were criminalized simply because they were powerful. Others were only criminals if they ended up in the wrong country's court of law. That's the case with the woman we're discussing today, World War II's so-called honey traps, or a brand of spy that used her sexuality to collect information, sabotage her enemies, and sometimes kill. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. 
Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The term honey trap has a surprisingly apt history. Like the idea of femme fatale itself, it exists somewhere at the border of fact and fiction. Originally coined by celebrated spy writer John le Carre in his 1976 novel Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy, it moved from fiction to life. The intelligence community started using the term. One of the reasons it made that jump is because it's a succinct metaphor for a real, long-standing espionage tactic. The spy positions herself as sweet, tempting, delicious, like honey. Her tools are charm, sex, or the suggestion of sex. And as they say, you catch more flies with honey. But honey is also sticky. Once you're caught in it, you're as helpless as a fly too. The tactic has proved effective for many different intelligence agencies. Today, even male spies can be found playing these cards, but traditionally it was considered a strictly female domain. In fact, the only female domain in the world of espionage. And on the surface, it sure did seem like a lovely gig. One overflowing with alcohol, sex, a good time, and targets who had no idea that their momentary pleasure was as dangerous as a knife at the throat. It was early 1940. Outside, Berlin's streets were blustery and grim. But the weather and the dreadful war weren't bothering Katerina Zamet, or Kitty Schmidt as her customers knew her, because those customers were arriving anyway. An endless stream of well-heeled businessmen, politicians, and diplomats trooped through the doors of Salon Kitty every day without fail. They appreciated the elegant decor, they couldn't get enough of the good drinks flowing from the bar, and they loved the discretion of Kitty's attractive girls in the rooms upstairs. Kitty had no reason to worry about business. No reason except for the microphones embedded in each of her rooms and the Nazi officer in her basement listening in on the salon's customers. Kitty tapped her nails on the bar, downed a glass of champagne, and tried to forget how this had all come about. She never wanted it. It made her feel like a criminal, although as long as the Nazis were in power, she was technically working on the side of the law. But the problem wasn't just guilt. If clients found out about it, it would be very bad for business. Just like Hitler and his prudish nationalistic policies were bad for business. In fact, when Hitler came to power, she'd immediately decided she had to get out of Germany and start again somewhere else. So throughout the 1930s, she'd secretly sent money to British banks, a lifeline. Then in 1939, she'd tried to flee. It was thrilling, terrifying. She'd made it to the Dutch border, but no further. In the bar, Kitty gestured for another coupe of champagne and surveyed the room, trying to focus on the present. But that escape was a difficult experience to get out of your mind once it reared its dreadful head. She could see the Netherlands just ahead, only a series of guards between her and freedom and she was confident she could make it. 
After all, they were just men, and she knew how to manage men. But as she got closer to the Nazi soldiers, she started to worry. They were so cold, so stern. They were in their element, and she was not in hers. Still, she'd gotten this far, and she was determined. So she tried modest charm. She tried sweet humor. She tried bold flirtation. And then, to her horror, she failed. They didn't trust her, so they took her to Walter Schellenberg. Schellenberg was a top figure in Nazi intelligence, and once he had a hold of Kitty, he knew he had an opportunity. So he took her to his superior, Reinhard Heydrich. Together, they offered the madam an ultimatum. She could return to Berlin, keep running her brothel, and more or less go back to life and business as usual, as long as she participated in a little scheme called Operation Kitty. They would embed Nazi agents amongst her staff and Nazi microphones in her rooms. The agents and the microphones would be used on official targets, foreign diplomats or Nazis who were suspected of betraying the fatherland. And if Kitty didn't cooperate, she could always pack her bags for a concentration camp. Two years later, and Kitty still shuddered at the thought. The anxiety of the operation was awful, but at least she was in Berlin and alive. And at least the Nazis' agents were real working girls, so they fit in with the rest of her flock. They'd just been trained on a few extra subjects. Take Helga, who was swaggering across the floor towards a high-ranking Nazi party official. She'd do the same thing as any other girl. Drink with him, chat with him, sleep with him. The only difference was, she picked her client based on Schellenberg's directives, and when they chatted, she plied him carefully to see if he was critical of Herr Hitler, or if he praised the Allies, or if he was careless enough to let important secrets slip. Then, Helga wrote a meticulous report of the encounter, and Schellenberg and his men had it all recorded via the microphones, too. Operation Kitty ran until 1942, and when the brothel was bombed in an air raid, at that point, Nazi officials decided it hadn't been useful enough to start up again elsewhere. But before it wrapped, the operation did reportedly glean some important information, including intel that allowed the Nazis to block the Spanish from occupying Gibraltar, a key wartime asset. The brothel's honeypots also famously caught one of Benito Mussolini's foreign ministers bragging about a private joke he shared with Il Duce. They called Hitler a ridiculous little clown. Salon Kitty wasn't the only gentleman's club turned honeypot hive during World War II either. In the Japanese-occupied Philippines, resistance fighters put together a spy ring at a cabaret club called Club Tsubaki, where they plied Japanese officers with flirtation and alcohol to glean information. In occupied France, sex workers were recruited by British intelligence to collect intel from their Nazi clients. Brothels and nightclubs were useful spaces for honeypot agents for several reasons. Practically speaking, they gave women access to male targets against the lulling background of alcohol. 
But another key element of the honeypot's effectiveness, and a tool of female intelligence agents in general, was sexism itself. Throughout history, women have been perceived as less intelligent, less capable, and overall less threatening. And thanks to prejudices around sex workers specifically, nowhere is a woman less respected and therefore more trustworthy than in a brothel. Still, not all of World War II's honeypots were sex workers. Back on the Allies' home front, intelligence services were desperate for intel from behind Nazi lines, and they knew that a free agent using honeypot strategies could serve them enormously. Early on in the war, British counterintelligence officer Maxwell Knight put it this way, what is required is a clever woman who can use her personal attractions wisely. American Betty Pack embodied that description perfectly, and once she decided to turn her skills towards the Allied cause, the Axis was in for some champagne-soaked trouble. Coming up, Betty Pack is the quintessential honeypot, seductive, delightful, and utterly dangerous. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the ParCast series Cults. Be sure to check out our four-part special on miracle healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. To gain an advantage over the Nazis in World War II, the Allies needed honeypots, and they found one in a certain Betty Pack. But before she was Betty Pack, covert agent, she was Amy Elizabeth Thorpe, and she spent her early years in an upscale Washington, D.C. milieu, learning to be a lady. That is, charming, sweet, and attractive. But Betty was an independent, free-spirited woman from the start, when she married Arthur J. Pack at the age of 25, it was mostly because she was already pregnant, and she quickly found marriage wasn't quite enough to hold her attention. Arthur, an attaché at the British Embassy, was all right, but a bit dry. And when he was transferred to Spain in 1935, 
Betty felt the thrilling jolt of the new. She couldn't resist throwing herself into everything her new environment offered, like a passionate affair. Carlos Sartorius was a Spanish government official and also married, but neither he nor Betty cared. This was living. This was bliss. Unfortunately, the ecstatic couple's bliss was interrupted by an increasingly grim political situation in Europe. In the summer of 1936, the Spanish Civil War erupted with a vengeance. Betty and Arthur fled to France, and within a year, distressing news reached Betty. Her erstwhile lover, Carlos, had been abducted by rebel leader Francisco Franco, along with plenty of other government officials. Betty was horrified, and with all the passion and energy of an intelligent woman with few outlets for her skills, she made a decision. She was going to rescue her lover. Arthur was on a trip to England, which provided the perfect opportunity for Betty to take action. The first step was an intelligence-gathering mission behind enemy lines. Her cover? she was delivering Red Cross supplies. And when suspicious Spanish officials stopped and questioned her, she convinced them it was true. She had no ulterior motive. She was simply a charitable, charming, silly woman handing out bandages to men in need. They let her go back to France unharmed. But she still didn't have Carlos. Spanish friends eventually informed her she'd have to go to Madrid, where Carlos was being held in a military prison. Easier said than done, Madrid was at the center of the national conflict, bombed every night and overrun by Franco's men. So Betty started with Valencia, a coastal city far from the fighting. She paid a visit to the British Chargé d'Affaires for Spain, John Lesh. She explained the lengths she'd already gone to, looking for Carlos, and proclaimed that she was willing to risk everything if Mr. Lesh would only help her get to her lover and free him. Lesh listened intently to Betty's story about her narrow escape from Spanish prison and the feminine charm and so-called innocence she'd used to execute it. He also watched intently, noting her beauty, and then he cataloged his own reaction to her breezy, attractive mannerisms. So he made a snap decision. He invited her to stay in his villa and then contacted some friends back in England at MI6. Perhaps he could help her, but perhaps she could help him with espionage. Betty Pack went on to execute missions for the British throughout the war. First, these missions were under Lesh's guidance. In one instance, she posed as the sister of an ailing prisoner of war. Betty's charm and flirtation with the Spanish warden led to her so-called brother's release. Then she moved in for the real kill. She managed to arrange an informal meeting with the Spanish defense minister, thanks to her political connections. He had the power to pardon Carlos and 17 other government officials the British wanted released. Betty was nervous. Her palms were sweating, but her skin was perfectly powdered, and she knew how to manage her face. She was in control. The minister had no idea what she was doing. 
She just had to turn on the charm and see what particular variation would win his favor. Sex. Or perhaps, she thought, looking at his soft, dreamy eyes. Romance and tragedy. As the light from the window dimmed and the candlelight cast its warm glow across her face, Betty dove into the act. She spun a tale of simple, feminine affection. She needed her Carlos. It was a quest for romance, a story of young lovers thwarted by fate. First, there was Romeo and Juliet. Now, Betty and Carlos. The minister was moved by her tale of woe, by her fluttering lashes, by the timeless plight of star-crossed lovers. Betty could see success in his face. His hands were ready to sign the pardon. She was tempted, but she was no longer just pursuing her own agenda. She had an assignment, a real challenge. So, knocking back a sip of liquor and urging him to refill his glass, she pressed further. She softly reminded the minister that there were so many good men who deserved pardons, his own countrymen, with the same passions as the two of them, men with lovers of their own. The gamble worked. By the end of the night, the minister had signed the release form for Carlos and all 17 of the men on MI6's list. Of course, for all her sighing to the minister, Betty didn't need Carlos. Carlos had needed Betty. And after an emotional reunion, they agreed that it was time for them to go their separate ways. After all, Betty had a new source of excitement and intrigue in her life now, espionage. MI6 offered her another mission. They could get the Foreign Office to transfer Arthur to Poland, close to their new big concern in Europe, Hitler. There, Betty could pose as nothing more than an innocent diplomat's wife with a penchant for flirtation and collect intel on the Nazis. She agreed. Her task got easier when Arthur suffered a stroke and returned to England without her. Betty was a free woman. Living alone with convenient introductions to all of Warsaw's political set. In short order, she seduced Edward Kolakowski, a handsome young official at the Polish Foreign Office. Betty liked Kolakowski. That's why she picked him as a target, but she was also prepared to use him. First, it was little things. She fished for office gossip. She turned herself into a confidant as well as a lover. Then, when Germany invaded Austria in March of 1938, Betty played the anxious woman, worried that Poland would be next. Kulikowski comforted her. He assured her that there was a secret agreement between Poland and Germany which would keep the country safe. In fact, it was Czechoslovakia that was next on Hitler's list. The next morning, as soon as Kulikowski left her apartment, Betty made a call to the Regional Passport Control Office and the local MI6 official. MI6 was impressed by Betty's information. More convinced than ever that she was a valuable, trustworthy asset, they asked her to set her sights on a high-profile target. Count Michał Lubienski. He was a confidant of Poland's foreign minister, 
and a player in key political decisions, it was crucial to have an agent in Lubienski's camp or his bed. Betty promptly dropped Kolikovsky and successfully seduced Lubienski. After all, what could he possibly have to fear from such a charming woman? But every sweet nothing he whispered in her ear at night was typed up in her morning report and sent back to MI6 headquarters. In September of 1938, when Lubienski was Poland's representative at the Nazi Party rally in Berlin, Betty went with him and debriefed with him every night. She discovered that Poland had cracked Germany's apparently unbreakable code, Enigma. She also made a trip to Prague, where she served as a decoy at the door while another agent stole some military documents. Those documents ended up containing some incredibly important intelligence, a map detailing Hitler's three-year invasion plan. Hitler was going to try to conquer all of Europe, and Betty Pack was one of MI6's most valuable agents as a quintessential honeypot. As Betty's espionage career progressed, however, she tried on different covert hats. There was her stint in Santiago, Chile, where she played a journalist, a cover she used to spread pro-Allied propaganda and disperse news about nefarious Nazi plans. Then there was her final placement during the war back in her hometown of Washington, D.C. There, she successfully bought the Italian naval codes just before the embassy was going to burn them and kept them out of Allied hands forever. And finally, she outright stole the French embassy's naval cipher codes. It was the dead of night, and Betty was popping champagne at the French embassy with an unlikely pair of men. One was her new lover, Charles Bruce, the press attaché at the embassy. The other was the night watchman. As the two men chatted, she slipped a pill into one of the coops. She handed it to the watchman. But she wouldn't need to drug Charles. He was in on the plan because she picked her target well. He was as anti-Nazi as any American. After the champagne, the watchman began to look sleepy. A slightly anxious look passed over his drooping eyes as he bid them adieu. He'd leave them alone to celebrate their anniversary and go sit down somewhere. When they thanked him profusely for letting them have the run of the embassy, he brushed their thanks aside. He was happy to help out a friendly guy like Charles and his beautiful lover. And he knew what it was like to have nowhere to go with your woman. Spouses could be such a bother. With that, Betty and Charles downed the last of their champagne and got to work. They had just a few hours to smuggle their safecracker into the embassy photograph the naval codes, and then get the documents back into place. But they managed it. Those naval codes helped lead to the Allied victory in North Africa. Unfortunately, Betty's espionage career came to an end soon after this triumph. Charles, like most of her lovers, was married, and his wife had had enough of his infidelity. She spread rumors about Betty around Washington, including the fact that she was a spy. 
British intelligence had no choice but to retire one of their most useful agents. But Betty had already changed the course of World War II. Betty Pack was recruited by MI6 for her charm and her sexuality. They knew she had the intelligence and bravery that would allow her to use those assets to their advantage. But ultimately, they saw her as nothing more than a honeypot. That label, however, doesn't do Betty's career justice. She took on plenty of tasks that weren't strictly honeypot work, like journalism or buying and stealing naval codes from inside embassies. Her work contradicted sexist ideas about what a woman was good for. Her contributions were too useful to refuse. Betty Pack is not the only example of this stereotype-shattering espionage work. In fact, the Allies' need for information, especially from Nazi-occupied territory, grew incredibly desperate over the course of the war, and British intelligence was willing to try anything. They used female agents across a variety of missions. By the end of World War II, female spies had painstakingly built crucial networks of contacts throughout occupied France. They'd led sabotage teams against Nazi arsenals. Famous agent Virginia Hall is best known not for seducing Nazi soldiers, but for breaking Brits out of Nazi prisons. But life as a woman operating in a man's world is never clear-cut, and sexism and stereotypes were always at play for the covert female operatives of World War II. Many of the best agents of the era found ways to use those conditions to their advantage and prove that women could do so much more than history had allowed them to. They were whatever they had to be at any given moment to advance their goals. Sometimes that meant they were honeypots gathering intelligence, sometimes they were saboteurs, and sometimes they were killing Nazi soldiers. Like Truce and Freddy over Stegen. Truce and Freddy grew up in Harlem, Netherlands, with a single working-class mother who proved women were as capable of conviction and bravery as any man. She was a dedicated communist, and as early as the mid-1930s, she stood up for her convictions about equality by hiding Jews fleeing Germany. Truce and Freddy absorbed their mother's passion. And despite the fact that they were teenagers when the Nazis invaded the Netherlands in 1940, they decided that they were going to do whatever it took to fight the invaders, even if that meant weaponizing their burgeoning sexuality or assassinating German soldiers. Coming up, two teenage Nazi killers show exactly what a femme fatale is capable of. Now, back to the story. Truce and Freddy Overstegen's mother inspired them to despise the Nazis, and in May 1940, when Germany invaded the Netherlands, the girls' anti-Nazi career started under the auspices of their mother's tutelage. The Overstegens spent their days distributing anti-Nazi newspapers and pamphlets. Freddy later remembered, we also glued warnings across German posters in the street calling men to work in Germany, and then we'd hurry off on our bikes. They were papering the city with rebellion. 
But because they were innocent young girls and a lowly working-class mother, the Nazis were slow to suspect them. The leaders of the Dutch resistance, however, took notice. It was 1941. The Overstegens were spending a quiet evening at home when there was a knock at the door. Immediately, the family tensed. In occupied territory, an unexpected visitor almost always meant bad news or violence. But cautiously, they opened the door. It wasn't a Nazi soldier or a message about death and loss, but a man with a hat pulled low over his forehead. He was Franz Vanderveel, the Dutch underground leader in Harlem, and he had a request. The girls were young, innocent-looking, and so far, that had helped keep the Nazis off of their tails. Now he wondered, would they be willing to work with the organized resistance and throw themselves wholeheartedly into the anti-German cause? The girls enthusiastically agreed, and their mother, perhaps more reluctantly, gave her permission. She had just one rule for her daughters, always stay human. The girls promised, and with that, it was official. 16-year-old Truce and 14-year-old Freddy were resistance fighters. At first, the sisters didn't know exactly what their new roles would entail. As Truce put it, only later did Franz tell us what we'd actually have to do. Sabotage bridges and railway lines, and learn to shoot, to shoot Nazis. But Truce and Freddy weren't scared away by the significant danger those tasks entailed. They threw themselves into training and made sure they were too good to get caught. The girls were part of a cell of seven young recruits, which included one other girl, Hani Schaft. Alongside their male counterparts, the girls learned to shoot and navigate all the hiding places in the woods outside Harlem. But this was war. Time was of the essence, and it wasn't long before they were putting their training to use. They conducted their sabotage missions, blowing up train tracks to interrupt Nazi supply lines. And then they assassinated Nazis and their Dutch collaborators. Truce sat down at the bar near her target and did her best to look demure and attractive, sending shy glances his way. The batting eyelashes worked. Before long, they were chatting and drinking together. Not long after that, she asked him if he'd like to go for a stroll, and then she led him towards the woods. Freddy, still small and childish-looking, was hiding unobtrusively in the trees, keeping lookout for unwanted company. But there was none. She watched the show unfold, heart pounding. Decades later, she remembered it like this. They ran into someone, which was made to seem a coincidence, but he was one of ours, and that friend said to Truce, "'Girl, you know you're not supposed to be here.' Truce and the Nazi apologized, turned around, and walked away. And then shots were fired, so that man never knew what hit him. They had already dug the hole. This was one of the girl's signature tactics. Truce, the elder sister, would seduce a Nazi and bring him into the woods, where their cell would kill him. 
a classic honeypot operation. But as time went on, it wasn't just the boys doing the shooting. Freddie was the first of the girls to kill a Nazi. Then Truce and the sister's other female collaborator, Hani, also slayed their fair share of Germans. It was exciting, but killing wasn't pleasurable work. Freddie eventually put it this way, Yes, I've shot a gun myself and I've seen them fall. And what is inside us at such a moment? You want to help them get up. And as Truce explained, We did not feel it suited us. It never suits anybody, unless they are real criminals. Still, the girls continued their covert fight and their assassinations throughout the war. Because, Freddie said, we had to do it. It was a necessary evil. The Overstegen sisters' distaste for the act of killing may be one of the reasons they never revealed how many men they killed, and thus one of the reasons we will never be sure of the full breadth of their contribution to the resistance. As Freddie put it, they were soldiers, and soldiers don't say. They simply fight. We do know enough about the young sisters, however, to say that they were real femme fatales, truly dangerous, at least to their enemies, and not just because they were sexual, but because they were relentlessly brave, dedicated, and ruthless when it came to fighting for their beliefs. Truce used sexuality because it was one of the tools at her disposal. Freddie used the perceived innocence and unimportance of a little girl child to keep watch time and time again. And then they went in for the kill. Like Betty Pack, Truce and Freddie are an important example of female covert agents, both using and moving beyond the honey trap designation many men tried to assign them. And they went farther down that path than Betty to find it coated with blood. But they are exactly the kind of exception that proves the rule. Boss von Benda Beckmann, a former researcher at the Netherlands Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies, explained that they were unusual, these girls. There were a lot of women involved in the resistance in the Netherlands, but not so much in the way these girls were. There are not that many examples of women who actually shot collaborators themselves. Gendered expectations for women, covert operatives or otherwise, are incredibly difficult to move beyond. And usually, doing so requires more than conviction from women themselves. It also requires the approval of the men women answer to. As writer Liza Mundy put it in The Atlantic, what many women spies had in common, along with grit and remarkable courage, was a man who saw their potential. In the case of Truce and Freddie, that man was Franz Vanderveel, leader of the Harlem Resistance. But unfortunately, many of the men who accepted female potential during World War II seemingly only did it out of desperation. And in the aftermath of the war, they refused to acknowledge the implications of their female colleagues' wartime success. Instead, they went right back to the comfort and power structures of old prejudices. Few women were accepted into the intelligence operations that their wartime work helped build, like MI6 and the CIA. These agencies were notorious boys' clubs through the Cold War and beyond. 
Beyond espionage, women who spent the war years working in industry and business were summarily kicked back into the kitchen. Now that the men were home from the war, they wanted their jobs back, and they didn't care how well their wives had done them in their absence. Still, if the femme fatales of World War II prove anything, it's that whatever the social conditions and prejudices of a given era, women have found ways to advance their agendas and wield power. Whether that woman was a Kitty Schmidt, determined to keep her business going and a roof over her head, or a Betty Pack, intent on living an exciting, fulfilling life, or an Overstegen, full of conviction about right and wrong, Femme Fatales don't have one goal or even one type of goal. They run the gamut from truly criminal to criminalized, from selfish to martyr-like. What they all have in common, however, is that they've often had to achieve their goals surreptitiously or obliquely, thanks to a sexist world. And that has only made them more clever, braver, and more determined. Over the course of the rest of our special on Femme Fatales, we'll look at just how dangerous women have been across history and to what ends. We'll cover everyone from KGB operatives to the notorious Mata Hari, and along the way, we'll explore what drove these women, how they worked both around and within the confines of a prejudiced world, and what they accomplished. Because ultimately, each and every one of them lived a magnificent, thrilling life against all odds. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of our five-part Femme Fatale series, covering Caterina de' Medici and her flying squadron. This group of seductive agents was intent on advancing their mistress's interests with whatever tools necessary. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gatovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 